HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by One House. Learn more about our comprehensive hospitality solutions and our new app, One House Beacon, at one-haus.com. I'm Mike Kalameko from Food Talk. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We are coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, December 7, 2016. This is the 126th episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an award-winning celebrity chef, restaurateur, author, TV personality, and food activist, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to use your platform to make a difference. No matter how big or small your stage, you can let your voice be heard. Whether it's speaking up in your community or workplace or on social media, you can influence change. So if you believe in something, stand for it and get vocal. We can use our platforms to inspire and work towards a greater good. That's my tip today. Now I'm very honored to have my guest here. It is Tom Calicchio, five-time James Beard award-winning chef and restaurateur whose company Crafted Hospitality includes Craft, Craft Bar, Craft Steak, River Park, and newly opened Fowler and Wells. Tom is also the founder of Witchcraft, premier sandwich shops. He's the author of several award-winning books and head judge on Bravo's Emmy-winning show, Top Chef, now in its 14th season. Tom appeared in and served as executive producer of A Place at the Table, a documentary about food insecurity in America, and as a social and political activist, having co-founded Food Policy Action in 2012. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you here, and that that's a summary, a short, shortish bio, because I could go on. Um, very impressive career. 
And I like to start out with my guess of how you got into this industry and became a chef. Was mm-hmm. it something growing up you always wanted to do? Um, yes. Um, I was um, around 13 when I started cooking at home. And, and just, uh, you know, I say cooking at home, making pancakes and stuff like that. And I used to watch my mom cook and that counts. say, this doesn't look that difficult. And so, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so I started cooking at home and, and found that I, I had a real passion for it. But I also thought it was very easy. It just came to me very easy. And um, when I was about 15, my dad actually suggested that I be, think about becoming a chef. And it was also right around that time when my dad brought home a bunch of cookbooks. Now, he said he got them from work. Now, my dad was a correction officer in a county jail, so I'm not quite sure why they had uh, the New York Times cookbook and the James Beard cookbook and, and Jacques Pepin's La Technique. Um, but uh, they were you know, on the kitchen table one day, and I started reading through the books, and especially Jacques Pepin's book really um, resonated with me. Um, you know, his book... Um, it wasn't necessarily a, a recipe book. It was more about techniques. And he really stressed that once you understand techniques and, and methods, then you know how to cook. So it's these, these, these basics that you have to learn first. And as someone who probably would have been diagnosed with, with ADD, I, I had a hard time getting through a recipe and understanding it. And once I, I started to understand this, this idea about techniques, it unlocked all the mystery of cooking. And things then really started to come pretty quickly. And I remember... Um, the introduction, um, the last paragraph, it said, don't use this as a recipe book or a collection of recipes. Think of this as an apprenticeship. And I really took that to heart, to, you know, to heart as a 15-year-old. And so I started making stocks. And then, they, you know, you'd make consomme because it was something to learn how to do. And, right. and you know, they stressed knife skills. So I would go out and buy celery and just chop celery because celery was cheap and it's a way to practice knife skills. And there were also silly little things like how to make rabbits out of olives and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, <laughs> tomato roses and fluting mushrooms. But, uh, but uh, once, um, once I started, I never, I never looked back. I, I started working in restaurants right around the age of 15. Um, I took a, a job as a short order cook. It was the best job I ever had in my life. Short order cook at a swim club that my parents belonged to. There was a, there was a separate concession that, you know, they would do lunch and stuff there, early dinner. And um, the, uh, the guy hired me, the guy who was running it, hired me to, to scoop ice cream and work the cash register. And within a week, I was cooking. And the guy was paying me, like, $275 a week under the table. Right? And, I, and I, I think the statute of limitations has passed, so I can say that. Huh? <laughs> but um, um, You could say it on Heritage Radio. Uh, yeah, right. So um, I was also, I worked in the compare cutoffs, maybe a shirt. Never shoes, and it was just an amazing job. I was, you know, I was making grilled cheese sandwiches and burgers and stuff like that. But still, I was, I was cooking, and uh, just never looked back. So, d- did all of your training come from working in restaurants and from reading books? Did you go to cooking school? No, I, I didn't. Um, uh, my dad also suggested through a friend that I look at Culinary Institute of America. I had no idea there was a cooking school at the time. And um, we looked into it, and you had to work in two restaurants before they would accept you. And so I decided to start working. And right out of high school, I worked at a restaurant. And I was working there um, during the year as well with busing tables. And I started in the kitchen. It was a restaurant called Evelyn Seafood Restaurant. And it originated in Belmar, New Jersey. And then there was a branch of it in, in Elizabeth, New Jersey, where I grew up. So I started working there. And um, 
I spent about a year there. And then from there, moved on to a red sauce Italian restaurant in Union, New Jersey, a restaurant called Chestnut Tavern. Um, and I was taking the place of a, a, a older gentleman who was working Garmage and he was retiring. I had a little more energy, so I was able to get the station set up very quickly. And I, I learned to butcher there. We would break down six legs of veal a week, um, butcher steaks and stuff. And so I started working with the guys learning how to butcher. So I learned something there. Um, I spent about a year there and then moved on and um, worked in a few of the restaurants. And the, the first really sort of good restaurant I worked in was a restaurant called um, 40 Main Street in Milburn, New Jersey. And... It was right around the time of, you know, American cuisine was, you know, uh, starting to, 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 to come on strong. And we were doing new menus every day, and, and it was really creative and fun. And uh, I worked with two guys there um, who uh, had, had worked in New York, uh, a guy named Jerry Ryan, who has a, a great restaurant called Coastal Grill in Virginia Beach, and um, uh, Bill Rogers, um, who's uh, a, a chef uh, in, in New York as well now. And, uh, and Bill was actually working in the front of house then, but they kept saying, you got to go to New York. You have to go to New York. And, you know, growing up in New Jersey, New York, even though I grew up 20 minutes outside of New, of, of New right. Jersey, 20 minutes outside, New York is like, it was scary. You didn't go there. And it was always <laughs> like, I always had in my mind, like, you have one shot in New York, and if, if you don't make it, you're, you're, you're never going to go back, and, you know, you got to be ready for it. And, you know, it's a... 19, 20 year old, you think about it, you know, okay, it's New York. And um, so I finally decided to get my resume out there and I got a job at Gotham. Now, this okay. is Alfred was there two days. So the restaurant was open before Alfred was a chef there. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, it was, he was there for about two days. And I got to him through um, his wife at the time, Helen Shardak, was running jams. Okay. And so I went to, you know, put in my resume at jams, and she took me aside. She goes, well, we don't need someone, but go, go talk to this guy, Alfred Portale. He's down at this restaurant in Gotham. I worked there for about a week because Barry Wine at the Call the Draft called me and offered me a, a position. And so I left Gotham after a, a couple days, really. I can um, go on the resume. Oh, yeah, but I ended up working there later on <laughs> okay. as well. Um, and Alfred's a good friend, and so, but... Quilted Giraffe was the restaurant that I wanted to work in. Yeah. And now, by this time, I'd, I'd worked at a bunch of restaurants, and um, I was a fast cook and prep cook. I, I can, you know, uh, yeah. just, at this point, I had some skills, some skills. I, I imagine. And uh, after about four months, Barry gave me the sous chef's position. So here I am, 22 years old, first job in New York, and a four-star restaurant, and I'm you know, I got this position, and so that was. I decided at that point not to go to culinary school. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I, I mean, it's you. You learned on the job, and so jumping ahead a little bit, how did you meet Danny Meyer and get involved with Gramercy Tavern? Yeah, so um, I ended up taking a chef's job at a restaurant called Mondrian. Um, there was a chef there before me, and he was from New Jersey originally. I knew him from New Jersey, and he decided that he. He didn't want to be in New York for various reasons. And um, I, the owners of the restaurant, um, I was actually, I moved to, to France. I took the job, back up a little bit. Um, I had planned on going to work in France. I had two stages set up. And my dad um, was diagnosed with lung cancer. So I decided to stay home. And took this job at Mondrian. And soon after, my dad passed away. So I took some time off and then left to go to France to work. 
and uh, was working at uh, Michel Bras restaurant. This was '86, uh, I think, around there. Okay. And um, uh, I got a call from the owners of the restaurant you know, saying, "It looks like uh, Dennis is leaving. You know, we want to talk to you about the chef's job. Can come back." So I came back and I took that job. I was 26, and um, got reviewed. Soon after, got three stars. Yeah. Brian Miller was reviewing then, which was, you know, I was, no one knew who I was. I was at a left, was at a left field. It was great. That's amazing. And Danny started coming to the restaurant. Okay. And so I met him in the restaurant. And then in 1991, Michael Romano, who was a chef at Union Square Cafe, he and I won Best New Chef Food and Wine Magazine in 91. So I spent time with Danny in Aspen and got to know him a little bit. And then... Mondrian closed. It was a bad rent deal, and finally we closed the restaurant. And before, right before I closed the restaurant, I was in Aspen again the following year, and Danny and I had lunch. And I called him about a week later, and I said, listen, Mondrian's closing. Let's talk. And he said, about what? I said, well, I think we should open a restaurant together. I mean, I was a fan of what he was doing at Union Square Cafe. He was clearly a fan of what I was doing at Mondrian. And at first he said, no, nah, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not interested in doing another restaurant. One's enough. And a week later he called up and said, let's talk. And um, as the story that he tells is Robert Chatteron, the wine importer, um, who sold wine to me at Mondrian, I guess Danny was friendly with him and, and, and knew him professionally and said, called him and said, what do you think of Tom Colicchio? And he said, um, his response was, if Sandy Koufax called you and wanted to pitch for your team, you'd probably hire him. That's quite a compliment. <laughs> so, and so Danny and I got together. What we did is we, we decided to take a trip together. We traveled to Italy together. We figured if we could travel together, we could work together. Um, and uh, before we got off the plane on the way home, we had this idea for Gramercy Tavern sketched out. It took about six months to find the location. Um, my partner, the, the owner at Mondrian, he came in. Um, so we we had a, a, a three-way partnership, essentially. Um, and uh, so from, it was exactly almost two years from the day when I closed Mondrian to Gramercy opening. And... Uh, and you had tremendous success with that yeah. opening. It's mm -hmm. still, I mean, Gramercy Tavern is still one of my favorite restaurants, mm -hmm. and it's an industry favorite. And there's so much to cover with you, and I kind of want to get into then with craft. So mm -hmm. how did that, how did you, when did you make the decision to open craft? And did you ever visualize that you would have so many craft restaurants under your umbrella? No, no. What happened was um, I... Was I was at, at Gramercy, and you know I was a, I was a owner of Gramercy. It wasn't right. That, you know, yeah, no, gave me a piece of the business, but I was. I knew. And yeah. so yeah, and so I I was approached by this guy out of the blue who had a building around the corner, and he was it was a co-op, and he grabbed me one day and said, "Can we you know can we talk?" He called me. He told me, "Yeah, okay." And he said, "We're thinking of putting a restaurant in the building, and I wanted to talk to you guys how you deal with garbage and pests and noise." It's okay, so I talked to him. And I said, can I see the space? He said, oh, we have a lease ready to go, ready to be signed. I was like, okay. Hmm. About three or four months go by, I don't see construction happening. It was right around the corner from, from Gramercy. Literally, the buildings backed up to each other. So I, I knocked on his door and you know, called him back and said, what's going on? He said, oh, that first lease fell through, but I have somebody else. And I believe he was talking to Jeffrey Zakarian um, at the time. And that fell through. And then he called me up. He goes, the space fell through again. Do you want to look at it? Okay. So I, I looked at it. And... Um, it took a while to get it open. And I was still at Gram I didn't leave Gramercy until... Craft had been open about a year before I left Gramercy. Um, I was going back and forth. And um, 
um, you know, Danny and I had worked it out, and then it just got complicated, and um, uh, we made a decision to that one of us should have the restaurant, and we actually had a deal worked out where I was going to buy it from him. Oh, and interesting. Last second, I thought about it, and I, I had reasons why I thought it's best to, to sell it. And uh, so, if it was called yeah. Gramercy Craft, then maybe you would have kept it. Just kidding. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I thought about it, and, and yeah. but you know, for for me, it's funny. I never talked about this um, publicly. Um, there Here was a moment. There was a moment in time at Gramercy Tavern. When I was in the kitchen all the time, before Kraft opened up, Claudia Fleming was a pastry chef, arguably the best pastry chef yeah. in America. Yeah, terrific. Um, Paul Greco um, was running the floor and another, running the wine another program. Another terrific person. Nick Matone was a general manager. And, you know, yeah. we, we collectively worked our butts off to get this place to where it was. And then little by little, they all left. And I thought, I'll never. Not saying that somebody else couldn't, because I, I, Danny, obviously, and Michael Anthony did an, did an amazing job there. I didn't think that I could ever get the restaurant to the point where it was when I had that team. And I decided that it's, it's best to move on. It's for, I, I, I get that. I mean, that was mm-hmm. an all-star lineup. Right. And, yeah, yeah. Um, well, good to know. And, I mean, your craft restaurants, are uh, you've grown an empire. And I've been mm-hmm. to... Um, well, seven restaurants, nothing. <laughs> plus all the witchcrafts. Right, 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 right. Yeah, the, no, and I've I've been to I've been to most of your restaurants, and I I love them all. And how do you I mean how how and also going back and craft in two thousand one received three stars mm-hmm. New York Times and then re reviewed ten mm-hmm. years later holding three stars and that's I mean that's an incredible accomplishment. Mm-hmm. So how how did, how have you gone about? Deciding to open new restaurants and and by the locations and and then how do you manage this all yeah. all of it? Um, well, craft after craft, we craft steak opened up and I got a call from uh, Gamal Aziz, who was the, who, the president uh, at um, the MGM Grand, and he said we want to do a restaurant with you, um, but you have to do a steakhouse. And I was like, I just opened craft. I'll do another craft. No, it has to be a steakhouse. And I looked at craft and said, okay, I can make. I can make that a steakhouse. So Craft Steak opened up, and then Craft Bar opened up, and then we brought Craft Steak to New York. Um, and bad timing, tough location. Then we switched that over to Clickio and Sons, mm-hmm. and just you know had a good run for a while. Got a, a three star review, um, mm-hmm. but just had a tough go of it there. And we just recently closed that. But um, what I did was I, I timed the closing with the opening of Fowler and Wells. So I was able to move the entire you know, team, or most of the team down there. Whoever wanted to go down was... Uh, That's smart. Yeah. But, um, no, you know, we we decided that, you know, there's opportunities come your way, whether it's a developer reaching out to you. And, and um, so we look at opportunities. Now, how, how I managed to do it... Um, uh, yeah, that's really what I want to know. <laughs> I, I got... I, for, for 16 years, uh, Katie, Katie Greco um, has been by my side. Um, she started as an assistant... Um, at Gramercy Tavern, um, I brought her over to Kraft to build it and then to be the general manager there. And she is involved in, in pretty much everything we do um, and has been the, the one constant over the, the 16 years since, since uh, I you know, left Gramercy and started Kraft, who's been you know, by my side. And she's, she's just incredible. And, uh, you know, 
Lots of great chefs when Kraft opened up. Marco Knorr was so instrumental, and Jonathan Benno was there at the time. Akhtar Nawab, John, uh, James Tracy. Dave Chang was answering phones for us upstairs at Kraft, and we pulled him downstairs to the kitchen. Um, you know, we had a, there's a lot of people that came out of that kitchen. Um, and uh, um, Karen Damasco was our first pastry chef. Um, oh, the name dropping is so, incredible. Well, and not, not to me the drop names. But, <laughs> I know, but, but I know, but it's you incredible. Asked me, yeah. You asked me how, how we do it. I, I'm you know fortunate to have always good people around. Um, and uh, but but the one constant is, has been has been Katie. Well, it's great to give her a shout out, mm-hmm. and that's that's how you do it. And on that note, we're going to take a little break. So stay with us. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. episode is brought to you by One House. At One House, we noticed that most serious chefs and managers don't hang out in brightly lit offices, so we've launched a new app, One House Beacon, to match top talent with competitive opportunities. One House Beacon provides employers and job seekers with a confidential, direct line of communication to our recruiters without the pushy and annoying extras. We don't send mass emails full of irrelevant recruiter junk. Download it now in Google Play or iTunes. At One House, we go out in the field to gather the best talent wherever they may be. We meet and talk to them like humans used to do back in the day. We are the people people. Our talent sourcing covers salaried dining room, kitchen, and corporate professionals. Drop us a line at one-haus.com or at info at one-haus.com for our confidential, up-to-date, and relevant career options, or if you're an operator seeking a culinary or management-level pro. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Tom Colicchio, chef, restaurateur, TV personality, food activist, and more. So, Tom, let's talk a little about Top Chef. How did that come about and... You're now in your 14th season, so you've been on a very good, very good, it's been, it's been good run. run. <laughs> That's an understatement. Mm-hmm. So when you were, I mean, when you were approached to go on a reality TV cooking competition as head judge, I mean, were you, did you think it would turn into what it's turned into? No. And, and my, my response when they first asked me was no. <laughs> and then they asked me a second time and I said no. And then they asked the third time and I said, all right, fine. And they said, well, we're going to send someone to, to get you on camera. And they came down with a camera and shot me, and then they, they offered me, they said, can, I come, can you come to L.A. for a proper screen test? And I was like, no. But I said there was a documentary made at the opening of Kraft, and um, uh, it, it aired on PBS. And I said, I'll just send you that. And I sent it to them, and they, they made me an offer. And then I thought about it, and, you know, I, 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 the, the producers produced Project Runway and Project Greenlight. And so I, I had a pretty good idea for, for what they were going after. And I sat down with him. I said, "Well, there's two things that that I just I just want to make sure, you know, you sign off on before we start this. Judges have to be able to make the decisions, mm-hmm. and you know, I want this to be something that the industry will look at and and feel good about it. And and I don't want this to be some joke 
that people just think it's some manufactured nonsense. And they were like, great, let's let's do it. And they have been true to that. And, you know, very soon after the first season, you know, we started getting phone calls from Daniel Balud saying, can I come on and be a judge? It was like, all right, we, we, we've accomplished those two goals. And, and it's just been a great run. But I think, you know, what's really neat is we, we change things up all the time. Mm-hmm. And we'll end up in a situation, we'll get together, we'll talk about it, and that can launch change of some of, you know, of, of the way we shoot the show, the way we do the show. But the show has grown so much. We started first season with probably, I don't know, a crew of 20, 25 people. Now there's close to, I don't know, 80, 100 people. We used to be able to pull all the equipment into one small truck. Now we travel with, you know, a fleet of trucks. It's, it's, it's pretty crazy. But uh, I had no idea. I thought maybe, you know, a few family members would watch it and some industry people. But uh, yeah, well, in your 14th season, which is just started airing last Mm -hmm. week in Charleston, Mm -hmm. and you brought back old contestants Mm -hmm. as as a little twist this this season. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what's something about the production that maybe we don't know? I mean, how long how how long do those does it take to to film an episode and and two days per episode? Okay, quick fire one day, elimination the next day. Um, We pretty much shoot every every day. There is a day off once a week. Um, we're, um, so it takes about five, six weeks to shoot a season. Um, and uh, the great thing about it right now is it's like summer camp. You know, once a year we go back yeah. and you see you know, the same crew, same cameramen, soundmen. Um, really neat thing is all of the, 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 a lot of the, the crew, they all play, play instruments and I play guitar and occasionally sing. And we'll get together and, and play at night. You so know, there's jam sessions. There's jam okay. sessions, yeah. It's it's a lot of fun. But it's like going to camp. It's all, you know, you see your friends. And you see them for six weeks, and then you see them next time you come back. Uh-huh. I love it. Uh-huh. And you're so good on camera. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you, you after the couple offers, you, you took it. <laughs> <laughs> so to totally change focus, because I want to talk about your social and political activism mm-hmm. because you're you're very involved and I was telling you before the show I you know I'm in awe of you on Twitter uh, uh, your your voice that you have out there and everything you're doing so there's there was one the documentary that you did with your wife who's mm-hmm. the director a place at the table that right. came out um, which has become a launch pad for the National Movement centered on ending hunger in the U.S. And then you also co-founded Food Policy Action in 2012. Mm-hmm. So how did, I mean, how did you, your voice in, in, in food policy, like, how did, how did you start and, and become, I mean, was it some, I don't know. Well no, well, no, but you, you know, you started the, 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 this uh, the show with your tip, and that's exactly why I do what I do because I was given a soapbox, I was given a platform, mm-hmm. and I decided to use it for for you know for for good. So what happened is is for the last you know twenty five thirty years of being a chef in New York, uh, I've been very involved in raising money for for uh, various anti hunger organizations, whether it's Share Our Strength or New York Food Bank or God's Love We Deliver, Meals on Wheels, City Harvest. And I thought, all right, I'm doing my part, and that's that's fine. Um, and then um, the film came about. My, my my wife was mentoring a young girl who was living in a shelter at the time, and uh, she had some learning disabilities. And we managed to get her um, into a private school in New York City. If the city can't meet the students' needs, they can be placed in a private school, and the city pays for it. So we managed to, to, to do that. And a week into the semester. We got a phone call from the principal saying that, that this young woman was, was clearly hungry and, and 
Um, what we didn't realize at the time was the only meals that she was getting was breakfast and lunch at the school, public school. So this school didn't have a breakfast and lunch program to private school. So my wife came home frustrated, and uh, she's, a, she's a writer in narrative. She makes narrative film, not docs. But she just said, I gotta, we have to make a doc about this. And she reached out to a friend of hers, Christy Jacobson, who's a documentary filmmaker, and they co-directed it. Um, and um, after the film came out, um, uh, it, it kind of you know, put, put me square in the middle of... of and, and our... our our, um, very quickly after starting to research it, we realized that people are, are hungry in this country not because we have a lack of resources. It's not because of drought or famine or war. It's because we don't have the political will to feed people. And this is what we heard from so many people and started exploring that. And so that led me to policy work. And But what happened was I you know, naively thought that, well, if you have at the time... 48 million Americans are struggling to feed themselves. That's a constituency of people who should go out there and vote this single issue and, and get members of Congress and, and elected who care about this issue and will fund programs. You know, we, we, we went back in history and found that in the late 70s um, through, through funding of, 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 of uh, things like SNAP and school lunch and WIC that we almost ended hunger in this country. And in the 80s, it all changed. And it was this idea of, you know, thousand points of light and let charity and churches take care of, of this. Government has no role. And hunger came back. And so that led us to believe that there is a government solution to, to the problem. And so this is what's interesting. So if you double the charitable response in this country, the total charitable response to hunger, all food banks and charities, churches, doubled the dollars going in, you would only decrease hunger by an additional 10%. So that tells you it's not yeah. about it. We, we can't cure it through charity, and so. So then I looked and said, "Well, this is the, this demographic doesn't get out to the polls. Also, yeah, 13 million children they're not voting. Um, 16 million uh, seniors they do go out to the polls, but it's still it's not a demographic that gets out to the polls. And so then I looked and said, "Well, there's this food movement, this other thing that I'm part of." And usually that group of people, you know, they care about farming, they care about fresh food, they care about the overuse of antibiotics in the food, the sort of pollution and runoff from, from uh, large-scale agriculture and things like that. Well, they also care about feeding hungry people. So if you can knit those groups together, maybe you have a larger constituency. And um, Ken Cook, who was running the environmental working group, um, he was also in the film. We had some, several conversations about this, and we, we formed Food Policy Action. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's, uh, I'm, yeah, your, my, my tip, my platform tip came from thinking about you and what you're doing. Um, I get inspired by my guests. And what, what, what issues, what are you working on now? What's, I saw, I saw, um, you're on Twitter today about the child nutrition bill not being passed. So, right. So the, the, the childhood nutrition reauthorization, it's, uh, it's, it's reauthorized every five years. Um, it's, uh, when uh, President Obama signed it, he, he called it the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act. And um, when he signed the bill, um, it, it, it did a few things. It cut out a lot of sugars that were in the classroom. I'm sorry, in the, in the lunchrooms. It got rid of the vending machines. Um, it uh, raised the standards for whole grains. Um, f- mandatory one serving of fruits and vegetables. Um, put a little more money into the program. Um, Changed around the eligibility a little bit for who gets a free versus a reduced lunch, um, and 
you know, immediately there was pushback from from the the, the other side, um, and mainly from industry, because you had large companies that were supplying school lunches. Now all of a sudden they had to reformulate their recipes, and they didn't want to do that because it cost money. And so there was a lot of pushback, and so there was negotiations, and very very close to getting a new a new a new bill passed and fund it. And after the election, I think that the uh, the there was a different attitude, mm-hmm. um, and it, it, the whole thing fell apart. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. frustrating. Yeah, so. but the, on the good news, there was a, there was a study today that came out. There was a congressional study that the House has been doing on 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 SNAP, and as it turns out, um, after the study, and a lot of people thought that this was going to be cover for the House to cut uh, the program. They found that it actually works. It actually uh, gets people out of poverty. It gives people a leg up and gives them the, you know, creates that bridge to, to get them to where they're self-sustaining. Um, and so, you know, I think the, the messaging around hunger needs to change slightly. We have to understand who's hungry, why they're hungry, understand that it's people who are working, who are, who are using uh, the nutrition programs, it's seniors, it's people with disabilities. Um, you know, the average person who has no dependents um, who's able-bodied, um, they're only allowed to stay on, on, on SNAP for three months at a time in any two, given two years. So it's not this, this uh, creates this dependency where, you know, that's what you know, we're led to believe. Um, but you gotta, let's look at it a, di- a little differently, especially when it comes around children, you know, around children. Without proper nutrition, kids can't learn. So they show up in school, they're not eating, they're irritable, they can't focus, they act up. So what are we losing as a country, the potential that we're losing from these children who, who go on to be adults, who, can, who would go on to be very productive, who may be the next scientist or astronaut or you know, someone who's going to discover a cure for a disease or, or the next president? Their potential is getting cut short because they're not getting the proper nutrition that they need. And so this is what it's, it's, I think it's really about. It's not so much about, yeah, my knee-jerk liberal you know, feeling that I need to, f- need to feed people. Yeah, that, that, that's there for me. But really, as a country, what, is, what does that pretend when, when, when a, so much of the population is, is getting stunted and, and they're not going to be able to, to live that American dream and, and live up to the full potential? Very well said. A lot, lot to take in for everyone listening. So on that note, we're going to take another break. Before we do, I just want to remind everyone, All in the Industry is brought to you by Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported nonprofit radio station devoted to all things food. HRN needs your support during our end-of-the-year fundraiser, so you can donate to HRN by going to heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate, and we thank you in advance. We really appreciate it. Now stay with us because when we come back, we're going to play my speed round game and talk some industry news. So this is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network.
Okay, we're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Tom Colicchio. It's time for my speed round game, which I guess you could call my version of quick fire. Okay. <laughs> Put you on the spot. So here we go. What I did is I'm going to name a couple things. It's a either or a preference, such as chocolate or vanilla, mm-hmm. and you just you pick your favorite. Okay. Eat in or eat out? In. Wine, beer, cocktail, or monktail? Depends on the day. Oh, God. <laughs> All the above. Okay. There are no rules to my game either. Tasting menu or a la carte? Uh, nowadays, a la carte. Small plates or large plates? You know, I don't mind small plates. I don't mind large plates. But this whole, and, and you know, in, in a way, craft kind of started this thing because we put food on the center table. Yeah, what I don't understand true. is small plates to share. We're a small plates restaurant to share. If it's a small plate, I don't want to share it. I'm going to eat it. Yeah, large <laughs> I'll share plates. a big one. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it's crazy. Small plates are great but, for solo dining. I do like I do like the smaller portions because I I I can't eat nearly as much as I used to. Okay. Uh, How about communal table or chef's counter? Uh, chef's counter. Tipping or all inclusive charge? Oh boy. You know, I, I like the all-inclusive charge. I wish that we were able to change some laws in this in the city where we can add a, a service charge. Um, it's not legal in a la carte dining. It is in private parties. Um, I think that would that would change a lot. Um, but uh, I, I wish we can go to an all-inclusive. I just don't think the public is ready for it yet. Okay. Well, stay tuned on that. Playing guitar or, or going fishing? Well, come on. That's, <laughs> those are my two passions. I didn't uh, say it was going to be I, easy. I, I love them both. Um, if I had to make a choice right now, probably, we, well, if someone said you can only do one or the other, I would probably stick with guitar because I do that every day where I don't go fishing every day. Okay. Yeah. That's a, maybe another tough one. I'm better at fishing than playing guitar, though, so I don't know. Anyway. I've heard you play guitar at, at some of these these Aspen late night things I, years ago. I fake it with the best of them. Well, no, I think you're pretty good. I've never gone fishing with you though, so if you if you want if you want a companion, let me know. Okay, keep going. How about winning James Beard Award for Outstanding Chef or winning an Emmy for Outstanding Reality Competition Program? And they both happened in 2010, I, I noticed. <laughs> it was a good year. In, in my, it was a good year. Um, I, uh, the Beard Ward. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm a chef. Yeah. Um, that other thing is a side, a little side game I play, but uh, yeah. yeah. Well, it was a very although, good year. Although winning Emmy was pretty cool. Oh, uh, yeah. I I, <laughs> both very cool. Okay, I'm giving, there's a few more. I'm giving you a bonus one. What's more nerve-wracking, introducing Hillary Clinton at the Clinton campaign rally or any other speech you've ever given? Because uh, that was impressive. I watched. Thanks, thanks. I, I wish we had a different outcome. Um, yes, ditto. Uh, that was my favorite one to, to give. Um, for some reason, I wasn't nervous. I, I don't know why. And there's always a little bit of nervousness when you get up to address an audience, and that's good. I, I think. was nervous watching, um, but <laughs> I, I, um, I, I wasn't. I wasn't nervous. I, I felt really good. In, I, I don't write speeches out. I, I, I can't read a speech. I'm terrible at it. Um, but I, I jot down notes and ideas, and once I get up there, it just kind of flowed nicely. Um, I have been much more nervous. Okay. You no, know, you know, you know, it's funny. I was. I was the kind of kid. I wouldn't get up in front of the class. And 
now I'm, 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 you know, I, I speak publicly quite often. And you know how I got over it? Family meal. Really? As a chef, every day, and the chefs out there know this, you get up in front of the staff, and it could be 10 people, it could be 30 people, and you talk about, you know, specials or what's going on and, and you know, whatever else you're talking about, a family meal. And that helped me get over my, my fear of public speaking. That's great. Yeah. Okay, two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Oh, God. My, my pastry chefs always get annoyed at me because whenever I'm in the restaurant eating, I never order dessert. Um, and sometimes I'll eat cheese. I'm trying to cut out sugar, so I'll, I'll say cheese plate. Okay. Last one, Manhattan or Brooklyn? I live in, I live in Brooklyn. Okay. I live in Brooklyn, and I, I moved about almost two years ago now. I'm, we're over in Fort Greene, and I'm, I'm loving it. Yeah. Wonderful. That was the game. Cool. Okay, so industry news. First article I have is on First We Feast. Amazon is launching a futuristic grocery store that promises no lines. This could be a serious game changer. And this is by Jackson Connor. So on Monday, Amazon launched or announced that they're launching Amazon Go, which is their mini supermarket where they're getting rid of checkout lines. And basically, the technology knows when you take something off the the shelf and if you put it back and you just check in with your smartphone when you enter and it's called just walk out technology what do you think yeah you know i read the piece and it it sounds interesting it sounds cool but but there there again technology you know in this election so much of it was about jobs and about people not having jobs and jobs disappearing and it's jobs aren't disappearing because of politicians jobs are disappearing because of technology and this is another example of jobs disappearing because of technology. So even these, these low-wage jobs of being a supermarket checkout person, mm-hmm. it's usually younger people or older people that have those jobs. It's gone. Just, just again, and, and, and I have nothing against technology. Right. But this is, you know, a, a lot of the reason why these jobs are disappearing. Even if these steel mills were to start opening, they would have a lot, you know, fewer people because of technology. Everything is automated now. And so technology is great, and, and we're going to keep advancing. But... This is the result of it, and and but that said, it's it's it is fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating, yeah. and not not like the checkout part of shopping is my favorite part, or that experience is so hospitable. It can be though, but it is the hospitality part of yeah. when you're when you're out and about and that's, shopping. That's, that's you right. know, that's right. And it can be very hospitable, and it can you know, I don't know, it should be. But yeah, I just I, I love to see it work. How did how, how is it now? How, yeah. how would if you like take the ice cream out of the thing and look at it? And go nah, put that one back. So reading labels, I mean, how does that happen? Because you're putting stuff. Back. But from what I saw, and there was a little yeah, video, it out. says that if you take it and you change your mind and put it back, it knows. Course, and that yeah. to me, that blows my mind because I don't know how yeah. how anything works. Yeah. But <laughs> no, I'm sure I'm sure the technology is, is, yeah. is all figured out. But it's cool, and yeah. and also for New Yorkers or, or anywhere. I mean, it, when we're moving so fast and you just want to go and grab and go, I mean, it might be amazing. I like shopping. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, 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 for anything? I, for food? For, for clothes? Clo- for, yeah, clothes, okay. clothes. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, I, I like shopping for guitars. Um, but no, f- <laughs> food, I don't, I don't mind it um, because I'm the kind of person where I, I can't, like, if, if my wife says, I'm going shopping, what do you want? I'm like, I don't know. I need to see it. <laughs> so you like the hands-on? Yeah, it's 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 fun. I like I like shopping for food, and it's, as long yeah. as it's not crowded, you know. Any, right. Any, between now and New Year's in New York City, it's just no. You have to go crazy. on the off hours, yeah. or um, I right. do like online shopping just because it's yeah, convenient. We, we do. Yeah, it is convenient, <laughs> but I still want to see it. 
Yeah, I hear you. Okay, the other article I had was on DNA info. School cafeterias may soon get letter grades like restaurants. Yeah, I saw this. I read this. Okay. Yeah, I I did. Um, (laughs) I love it. I I think it's great. I mean, they were citing um, uh, just how filthy some of these school cafeterias are. And, uh, yeah, if I I need letter grades in my restaurant, sure, why not? Yeah, well, I mean, from the article, the cafeterias have been graded or are graded. It's just not public as of now. So they're looking to see if they should make it public. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, I, I agree. If restaurants are getting A, B's and C's and think, I think schools uh, would, I mean, for, for parents to know what's happening in their school's Mm -hmm. cafeteria, I think, I think that's a good thing. So it's, what's really interesting. Um, you know, I, when I started cooking in New York city and Mondrian and even Gramercy Tavern, there wasn't a health department. So back in the, back in the, in the eighties, the entire health department was fired here for being taking bribes. And so when I first started out, you saw someone once a year, maybe. Yeah. And now it's changed a lot. And, and with the letter grade. And so, you know, I'm, I'm up until Fowler, Fowler and Wells opened up, you know, I, I'm in my kitchens, I'm in the restaurants, but I'm not involved in so much in the day to day. But when we get an A, like when Fowler opened up and we got an A, people were like celebrating. I was like, Wow, <laughs> this is this is different, but so it's really cool. So everyone's involved. Everyone from the, the porters to every line cook, Marche, This is something they all are really focused on, and they 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 are really invested in making sure that we get A's. And so it, it's great. And I think I think once you have that buy-in and that investment, you're, you're going to have a much cleaner environment, a safer environment. Um, you know, food safety is a major issue, and this is. Going back to politics, this current administration, I mean, there was talk about, you know, cutting food safeties. 28,000 people a year die from foodborne illnesses. You know, this is not nothing to mess around with. Yeah. And we certainly don't need an, a, an outbreak in, in restaurants. And we talk about, you know, people being afraid of going, going, going out. I and mean, you remember what happened to Jack in the Box um, years ago, God has to be 12 years ago, when, when a young boy died there. I mean, it, it yeah. hurt. It hurt the industry. And so we, we should make sure that our kitchens are clean and safe and that, that food is safe. And, and um, But, yeah, it's great to see how invested you know, the whole team is in each of the restaurants to make sure that we get that A. I agree. And on that note, we're going to take a break and come back. I'm going to do my solo dining experience. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to Own the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. This week, it's at Chumley's. Here's the rundown. The location, 86 Bedford Street, West Village, New York City. The concept, 
Revival of a legendary speakeasy updated with a sophisticated American menu. The chef, Victoria Blarney, an Aterra alum, and the owner, Alessandro Bergognon of Sushi Nakazawa. So why'd I go? Because I really want to see the revival and try their burger. My experience. I made a reservation for one for an early dinner on Saturday night. Once I arrived, I was seated at an intimate two-top near the front, and the manager came over to greet me, which was very nice. I took in the low-lit ambiance and enjoyed my me time. Now, what did I get? I had the 86th burger with chumley sauce, bone marrow, and crispy shallot, which came with fries, and a club soda. My take? A greasy, indulgent meal, worth the calories. I ate half and took the rest to go. The ambiance. Cozy, candlelit, and swanky. Perfect for burger lovers and a savory feast. Interesting tidbit. Chumley's was established in 1922 by the socialite activist Leland Stanford Chumley, who converted a former blacksmith's shop into a prohibition-era drinking establishment. The speakeasy became a favorite spot for influential writers, poets, playwrights, journalists, and activists. Personal fun fact. Afterwards, I found my way to another cozy spot, Boosie Tea Parlor, where I enjoyed a pot of milk oolong tea, which is a funny name because it actually didn't have milk in it. The cost was $28. That's not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes. Perhaps next time for date night. Website is chumleysnewyork.com. Have you been yet, Tom, to Chumley's? No, I have not. Have you been to the, the original? Mm, okay. Nope. Don't remember. Okay. Yeah, but sounds good. <laughs> it was good. It was. It was. It was an. It's a the twenty. The twenty eight dollar tea sounds uh, interesting. Oh no! The, no no the tea. I that was confusing. The tea was my tea was like nine dollars. The twenty eight. Oh. The twenty eight was the the Chumleys. Got it. I mean, it's expensive burger. It was a twenty five dollar burger. Yeah. And but, a three dollar club soda. Yeah, I, when I heard that, I <laughs> yeah. thought it was a twenty-eight dollar tea. I was like, "Wow!" It's, no, I didn't go that crazy on the tea. tea, but it was. No, I like I like Bosey Tea Parlor though. It's okay. it's cute. Okay, so now it's time for the final question. But before I ask you for it, I didn't ask you my questions. I need to ask you two questions from prior guests that asked you a question. So we'll try to do them quick. So one episode one twenty-five, I had on Jeremy Seawall. Um, he's an award-winning chef and restaur- restaurateur from Boston, and he has a new book out, Oysters, a Celebration in the Raw. So you touched on it before. He wanted to know, how is the industry going to handle the potential of no tipping? I mean, it's a kind of loaded question. Well, you know, I, I, th- I think it's not so much the industry that has to handle it. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the, the general public, and I'm not sure... The, the, I, mean, I, I, I tried it at, at Kraft for lunch, and it didn't. It wasn't working, mm-hmm. and so um, you know, Dan, Danny's Danny's doing. He's sticking to it, and and um, but I think that the jury is still out now. Where why I'm hopeful um, in in the, in the uh, sort of day and age of, of Uber, I like getting out and not worrying about you know tipping that person or. I typically don't walk around with cash, and mm-hmm. so you know it just gets. You don't have the credit card, you don't, and so Uber just kind of made it easy because you know the tips built in, right? And um, so, you know, I, I think I think we'll get there, um, but uh, I, I think the public, I think as the, as the population of, of people that go out are younger and younger, I think they'll be more accepting of it. 
Um, There's this idea that, you know, I'm not going to get good service unless I tip someone. Well, if that were the case, you probably would tip someone as soon as you sat down. If you actually want to ensure tip, it's an acronym for to yeah, ensure no, proper service. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Right? So if you want to ensure proper service, tip right. the person before you sit down, which is really old school. You know, you, you tip well, the matron at the door. Yes, yeah, slipping someone to twenty. Right. Yeah. Um, but but you know, here's the thing: if, if if you if you give someone a bad tip, I'm no, I'll never find out about that. No one's going to come running to me saying I got a bad tip because I gave bad service. If you complain to the manager, I'll find out about it. This is what makes me nuts about. You know, especially in social media. Someone gets home at 2 o'clock in the morning. I had really bad service in your restaurant. Well, I wish you had told me when you were there. Mm-hmm. We've done something about it. Um, right. Now, we, you should know when, when you know, you're not giving good service. And, we, you know, obviously we're, we are very, very focused on service. And, and, um, but um, the, we, we're not, you're not punishing the waiter. And it's quite frankly, if you get bad service in a restaurant, punish the, punish the restaurant. Don't go back. Um, you know, and often think about this. Most of the time when people, when they some bad service, food takes a long time, that's not the server's fault. It's the kitchen's fault. So if you're punishing the waiter, you're not punishing right. the, the, the problem with service. And so it's, it's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, for, for me, I just don't think that, you know, 100 to 200 people a night should determine how my staff is paid. I'd rather do that. But the only way to do that right now is in New York City, with the current system, the only way to do it is to raise prices by about 23%. And because now you're paying tax on that mm-hmm. money, too, because now it's income. And so the only way to do it, would, and, and so the prices the price, prices on the menu would have to rise, current prices would have to go up by 23%. You'd get sticker shock. And if you're looking to go out, you'd see my restaurant, where I tip, you know, tips included, right. and 23% more, and go, wow, this is expensive. No, oh, it's a perception right. so that we're not used to. Yeah, so mm-hmm. we're, not, we're not there yet, but I think we'll get okay. there. Great. Second question. On episode 119, I had on Ali Bazari. He's a culinary scientist. He has his new book out, Ingredient. So he, from working with lots of chefs, he has found that there's always a story that chefs have with teaching their, their cooks to use a rubber spatula to save um, so they're less wasteful. Yeah. And he wanted to know if you had a story that you... If that well, do do you have a story um, with teaching your chefs to use well, rubber spatulas? No, the story I have is, is <laughs> that was one of Thomas Keller's. I, I was uh, okay. his sous chef at Raquel, a restaurant that he had years ago in New York, and that was his thing. Man, it was just use a spatula, get every bit of it. Um, so um, you know, it's funny. I, it's not something that I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna watch the kitchens now because it's something that. I haven't thought much about, but I'll, I'll spend more time looking at it. I know at home I do. Um, and sometimes those lessons that you learned a long time ago, you kind of forget that that you have to reteach them. So <laughs> I, I, that's 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 actually it's, it's a good it's a good it's a good observation and, and something I will go back tonight and when I go back to the kitchen, to Fowler and Wells, and we'll okay see what's going on. Cool. Yeah. All right, now it's your turn to give a question. So next week I'm having on Jimmy Yu. He's the founding principal of Yu Design. He's a James Beard Award-winning kitchen designer. Um, I don't know if you've worked with him before, but he's done he's done restaurants like Morimoto, Nobu, Lincoln. So, Tom, you can ask a question for Jimmy. Well, I, I certainly know the Lincoln kitchen, and it's it's gorgeous. So he's done he does incredible work, and I'm, I'm sure we've we've met. Um, question? Oh God, I don't know. Um, I guess the question is, where do you see you know kitchen design going? Um, uh, 
it seems like there there hasn't been a lot of change. There's been some a few new companies that are doing some really cool things, but I guess what are what are the big changes that you see in kitchen design and kitchen equipment? Okay, that's great. I'll ask, and that's the show. Thank cool. you, thank you so much. So thank you. This has been fun. Yeah, no, it has been fun. Yeah. I'm I'm it, I'm honored. It's cozy in here. You know, it's raining outside and cold in New York right now. We're in this like kind of little cabin thing here, and you know, I have some nice charcuterie in front of me, so I'm I'm pretty happy. Yes, thank you. It is Thanks. cozy. If I wish we could chat for another couple of hours, there's so much more we could talk about. But this is this has been really special. So Thanks. thank you and congratulations on your entire career and everything. Thanks. So my guest today has been Tom Calicchio. He's the founder of Crafted Hospitality. He's a celebrity chef, restaurateur, author, top chef judge, and social and political activist. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Calicchio. You can also follow Bravo Top Chef and FP Action. And his website is craftedhospitality.com. If you want to check out Top Chef, it's in Season 14. It's Thursday nights, 10 o'clock on Bravo. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is all in the industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. And you can find, find all of our Heritage Radio Network shows on our website, and we're also on iTunes and Stitcher. I'd like to thank my fall season sponsor. It's One House Hospitality Headhunters. Their website is one-house.com. Their Twitter is one underscore house and Instagram one house. And that's spelled O-N-E-H-A-U-S. Thanks always to my engineer, David. And thanks again to Tom. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next week with another live show. Have a good one. And thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. On the top of the hill you see hey.